Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane here with you on Friday, May the 14th. This week we're focusing on a study not published in the issue of the Lancet, dated May the 15th to the 21st, but it was published online yesterday, Thursday, May the 13th, and it concerns the very important issue of health, particularly mental health, concerning that of armed forces who have participated in conflicts such as, in this case, Iraq and Afghanistan. More on that in a moment. But just before that, some highlights from the issue. The main editorial takes a close look at many of the environmental factors affecting cancer risk assessed in a new report out in the United States. Do look out for a collection of letters about ischemic preconditioning. This was an article we published a couple of months ago and featured on the podcast. There are many other topics covered as well in the correspondence section this week. In research, we publish an important study concerning the treatment of ischemic stroke with alteplase. This is a pooled analysis of several important studies in this field, again emphasising the importance of early treatment with alteplase for people who have had ischemic stroke. And this week's seminar, which was published online last week, examines childhood obesity. But this week we're focusing on a study published online on Thursday, May the 13th. It was funded by the UK Ministry of Defence and it concerns the health, particularly the mental health, of service personnel deployed in action to the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. This follows up research from the same team who are at King's College London in the UK in 2006. Let's now hear from two of the main investigators involved in the study from a press conference held in London this week. Introduced by The Lancet's editor, Dr. Richard Horton. After that, you'll hear first from Professor Simon Wesley from the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London, and then from Dr. Nicola Fear, who is from the Academic Centre for Defence Mental Health, also at King's College London. Welcome uh, this morning. My name is Richard Horton from The Lancet, and uh, very glad that you were able to come to an on the record press briefing to launch a paper that we're publishing online tomorrow on the consequences of deployment of UK armed forces to Iraq and Afghanistan and looking at the mental health uh, consequences of that deployment. You're going to hear from three of the key authors of this study this morning and there'll be an opportunity for questions afterwards. So let's start off straight away with uh, the principal investigator of this study, Professor Simon Wesley from the Institute of Psychiatry. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming. Um, You'd be amazed to know that we did actually plan to do this today because we thought a week after the election people would be fed up with politics and ready for some new stories and the room would be crowded out. This is a study that began actually in 2003 with the start of the Iraq war and for the first time the UK MOD started to really take the concept of carrying out health surveillance on the armed forces seriously, partly as a result of the kind of saga of Gulf War syndrome. And we were asked to carry out a a study run from King's looking at a large random sample of those who were going to Iraq in 2003 and a large sample of those who weren't. And the idea was this would be a rerun of the Gulf War, a kind of short, sharp shock, as it were. One of the main questions at that time was would there be a rerun of the Gulf War syndrome. So we did the study. We reported in 2005 that that, um, there hadn't been a Gulf War syndrome. There hadn't actually been a deterioration in the mental health of our regular forces who had been in Iraq since 2003 to 5, but there had been an impact on the mental health of reservists. And we also reported that, uh, contrary to what many people might think, one of the main problems they had in the mental health arena was actually alcohol misuse rather than post-traumatic stress disorder. And that we published in 2006 in in Richard's journal. And of course, since then, as you might say, the script didn't exactly go quite according to plan. 
the Iraq war continued, and indeed, by the time it had finished in 2009, it had run on for as long as the Second World War. Our casualties mounted, the uh, South became much more dangerous to our forces than it had been previously, and uh, our rates of casualties started to mirror those of the US. And of course, Afghanistan became a, a principal theatre of war as well, which it had not been up to that point. And many of the forces now found themselves going back to Iraq or Afghanistan once or twice, sometimes more than that. It will be common knowledge to you that issues around the mental health of the armed forces became a very, very hot media topic. Great concerns were shown about individuals who clearly had returned from war with mental health problems, uh, including alcohol, homelessness and so on. And there was also talk that we might be facing in the future an epidemic of such problems. Um, not an unreasonable view, because that's precisely what indeed was happening over in the United States. And so it was, we were asked to continue with the study, which in fact had not been the original plan, to reflect the changing circumstances. And so what we did was, as you'll hear, we followed up, first of all, every single person that had been in the original study. And this is the first time ever that this has been done in the UK Armed Forces, to have a prospective cohort study, as we call it, to look at what had changed in their health. But that group, of course, were getting older, and many of them had left, and we continued to trace them, even if they'd left the forces. But in order to make sure that the current study reflects what's going on at the moment, we also introduced a new group of people, those who joined the forces since 2003, and since then had had the opportunity to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan. And finally, we introduced a third group of people now to, oversight, to, to look at what was happening in Afghanistan. So the purists among you will realise that does make the paper a little bit complicated if you actually do get down to the methods, as I'm sure you will. Um, but that's just the way it is. Stuff happens, and as I say, we had to do that in order to ensure that the study was representative of what is going on now in 2009. Before we go to the results, I should say, it is an enormous... None of you have the faintest conception of what an appallingly horrible job it is to do these kind of studies... Um, it's lost me my hair and Matthew's only 21 you can't tell from the way he looks but it is very very different therefore we should thank obviously it's not really well it's not really me or Matt and Nicola does do a lot of the work but we don't do most of the work we have an incredibly brilliant team who have been with us for many years and they do most of the work we should also thank all the people who did take part we pursued them around the globe to their homes their bases in the UK in Germany in Iraq Afghanistan we, we just don't give up and we should also pay tribute to the MOT, who have consistently funded this study, but I should say, before you even ask, have not interfered with it in any other way, in any way, with the exception is that we, are not, we do not study special forces. So special forces are not included in this, and that is the only restriction that we have had from the MOT, which we have honoured. So that's the background, and now get on to the results. The real thing is, what has changed since 2005? Well, when we uh, set up the second phase of the cohort study, there were three main aims that we wanted to look at. The first was, what is the impact of deployment? Um, as Simon's already mentioned, the hostilities in Iraq continued longer than expected, and also the UK commitment to Af Afghanistan increased, so we wanted to look at that. We wanted to look at the role of multiple deployments, and thirdly, we wanted to look at the role of time since return home from home on deployment on the reporting of mental health problems. In the US, they report, well, they find that as the length of time people have uh, spent at home increases, they're more likely to report mental ill health problems, and it had been predicted that we would be seeing the same over here, and there would be a tidal wave of mental health problems, um, and we wanted to investigate this. <coughs> 
As Simon has already mentioned, we had a, a large study. Um, we approached over 17,000 personnel and we had responses from 9,990. So our results cover a large proportion of the armed forces and we feel that our results are therefore representative um, of them. I think the first thing to say is that despite the intense and increased pressures of uh, what our armed forces are, have been and are currently under, they're actually doing pretty well um, and their mental health is good. Um, the prevalence of PTSD is low. We report in the paper that it's uh, around 4%. However, they do report higher levels of common mental disorders at around 20% and alcohol misuse at 13%. If we look, move on to our sort of first area that we wanted to investigate, the impact of deployment, um, I won't go through the results in detail, but if you've got a copy of the paper, these are in tables four to six. And we showed that um, if we looked at those who weren't deployed and compared them to those that were deployed to either Iraq or Afghanistan, we found that deployed reservists were more likely to report symptoms of probable PTSD compared to their non-deployed counterparts. And for regulars, those that were deployed were more likely to report alcohol misuse than their non-deployed counterparts. Amongst our deployed regular groups, um, we also looked at the role that they held on deployment and whether or not that influenced their mental health. And we showed that uh, deployed regulars who held a combat role, that's our frontline troops, they were more likely to report alcohol misuse than those that hold more support roles, for example, logistics, medical roles. Our second area um, was the impact of multiple deployments. The results for this are shown in the paper on Table 7. And we report that there's no association between number of deployments and mental health problems. This is perhaps counterintuitive to what people would expect. However, it's likely that people, when they come back from deployment, if they are suffering... Uh, from the consequences of that, then they would be unlikely to deploy again. So obviously, those that are having repeat uh, deployments are perhaps those that are more psychologically robust, more resilient. And thirdly, we looked, as I've already mentioned, at the role of time since return from deployment on the reporting of mental health problems. And the results of this are shown in Table 8 and in Figure 5. And we report that, yes, there is a weak association between time since return from deployment and reporting of PTSD. So what that means is that the longer you've been back from deployment, the more likely you are to report symptoms of PTSD. This is a very small increase. I've already mentioned that the overall prevalence of PTSD was 4%. If you look at the paper, the highest prevalence we found was 6%, and that was for people that had been back from deployment for up to four years. So we're not seeing this tidal wave of mental health problems as was perhaps predicted, and we definitely don't reflect what's currently being seen in the US. Dr Nicola Fear, King's College London. And also look out for a linked comment from the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom on this important issue. Well, that concludes this week's podcast. Many thanks to all our contributors and to you for listening. See you next week.